to turn, you know, there's really no segue into a Chinese balloon shooting down. I mean, I guess you could go with eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, you definitely can't go put sorcerers to death. Maybe you can. I don't know. But I don't think there's a good segue into this, but we're going to go straight into the word tonight. I feel like we got through last week that passage, that Lex Talionis, the, the, uh, the eye for an eye, verse 23, 24, 25 of chapter 21. We got through that, discussed that issue, and we've been talking through what we are and what we are doing. Remember the context. Israel, the people of God, have been saved out of Egypt. They've been brought to Sinai where God has brought them, and God meets them there at the mountain of Sinai. On the mountain, God comes down, the place shakes, he speaks, they hear his voice, and in the speaking of God here, this, this voice comes, he gives them the Ten Commandments, what we know are the Ten Words. He gives them those ten. Those ten stand as ultimately head and shoulders above all the rest, in other words. Everything else will be built off of these ten. He gives them those, and at the end of giving them the ten, remember what happened. The people are like, stop. We can't take this anymore. The, the fear that they had, they're hearing the voice, they're scared of what's going on. And so they asked Moses, hey, I tell you what, why don't you go and talk to him? We'll wait to hear from you. And so there's the segue. The Lord then, the, then, then uh, the ten are given. Moses goes up onto the mountain and he's going to hear from God. And there we have this next section. And while the ten are given, the basis really of the law, the standards by which we must live, this next section is referred to as the book of the covenant. How will you live now in light? This is what I call basically case law, if you will. If you have these ten commandments, those are our principal standards, then how does that work out in our relationships? How does that work out with, with living together? Because you ultimately understand what you do. You have to build a government here. That's what's happening. That's what we're seeing in Exodus. God had saved his people out of Egypt. He said, I saved you so I can be with you. And so now as he comes out, he's got to build this whole government. If you've got this large group of people that are coming out and marching out together, going to the promised land, they need to know how do you live together? Who's going to organize this thing? Who's in charge? Where do we look to? How do we handle these things? What's going on? All of that has to be established and built. And hence, at some Sinai, the Lord starts with the law. And what he is building amongst his people is what we call a theocracy. God is demonstrating that he is in charge. He's the one who's in control. He, he's the one they must look to. He is saying, and so if he's in charge and he's in control, he's now giving them the law by which they must live. If the government's going to survive, it has to have a law, right? You have to know how you live, how do you work together, how do you live together, how do you even play together in those things. You have to have all of that. And so here he's building out the government, giving them the ten, and now building the case law after that giving them this covenant promise of here's what you are, here's what's expected of you. In this, we see this as a kindness. We don't see these commandments and these laws as some hindrance to the people, remember, or some oppression like Egypt had. This isn't God trying to keep them in their place. God is giving them these laws so that they as a people may flourish under his leadership. It's not to hold them back. 
He's not trying to keep something from them. He's wanting them to flourish. He's wanting their best life under his leadership. In fact, we can't forget the context here of these people had been in Egypt their whole life, and now they're out. They had Pharaoh as their dictator there who was oppressive, unkind, who was destroying them through even killing their children, right? You had him. Now God is calling them out. What they knew is now over, and God's saying something new is here that is me. I'm not like Pharaoh who wants to oppress you and harm you. I'm the God who loves you and cares for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to flourish as a people. And so those laws are not meant to be oppressive. They're meant for them to flourish. Because the oppression here comes when you don't keep the law. The difficulty comes whenever you don't follow after these things, the Lord is saying. And so as he gives them the ten, then he begins to work out these cases together. We ended there, as I said, with the eye for an eye, a passage that we discussed, one that is often quoted but very often misquoted and what is meant here as you come together. And now what I want to do quickly is I want to give you guys maybe some questions or some, yeah, some questions you can ask of this because we all know some of these things are hard for us to figure out what's going on. I mean, it really is. You get in here and you have, you know, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. You know, you have whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. That's just what in the world is happening with this. And then you end it with you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I mean, you got all kind of stuff here going, what does that mean for me today? How does this work? And so maybe some questions that can help. And, and, and the questions can be simple like this. When you read some of this, first you might ask, what was the objective of this law? What, what was this trying to stop? What was it trying to hinder, right? What kind of situation was it trying to either prevent or promote? What was it trying to prevent or promote? And some of the reasons I'm giving you some of this is because it really would be impossible and I think somewhat foolish. Maybe not foolish. I shouldn't say that. Time sensitivity Y'all already fuss at me for taking too long in the Bible. Y'all know what I'm saying. And so if we were to go through every one of these laws and try to do this, it would take us a long time to kind of handle it. But maybe if I can give you some of these, you can look at it yourself. What kind of situation was it trying to prevent or promote? What kind of people would have benefited from, uh, or would have benefited from this law or be protected by this law? What kind of people would have been restrained by these laws? Well, who would this law would benefit? Who will it restrain? What motivation was there for obeying this law? And what values, norms, or principles are embodied in these laws? You can ask these questions coming in, and when you ask those questions, then maybe you can start to see why this is important. So, for example, let's look through this. Just a couple pieces here. One principle that I think you get out of this is that human beings are above everything else. This is no small thing. Human beings are above everything else. It plays out really in that lex talionis, if you will, that uh, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or a hand for a hand. It's, it's not, again, promoting uh, vengeance here at all. It's protecting is protecting people from an imp, imp, 
uh, non-proportional punishment, if you will. In other words, it's not trying to promote eye for an eye, so therefore you go after it. It's trying to protect people from something that isn't proportional in the, in the, in the crime. So if a crime was taking place, especially if you had someone who was different in power levels or structures in society, the one who, was young, uh, who, who maybe was less than in socioeconomic status may do something to someone who was more than by stealing from them. What the law is saying is that one who is greater or more powerful can't take that one's life. It has to be proportional in how these things happen. There's a protection here of life that is going on. You can't just escalate this and deal with it how you want to. There is a proportion that these things lay out in. And then as you read it, you start to see this. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. In other words, you can't, you, you, you can't, you, to pay them back, they get their freedom, right? So if you do something to them, you got to let them go free. When an ox or an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in and kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. These only start to begin to make sense when you read it, though, right? Look, if you got an ox that messes around and, and gores somebody to death, then that ox is going to be killed. It's not going to gore anybody else. That's how it is handled. You lost that ox. It's over. But if we find out you know your ox has been goring people for a long time and you're still letting it gore people, that's on you, right? There is a, a, there is a negligence that is going on. The Lord is trying to say that human life is more important than an ox, and that's not some small thing for the people of this day. Oftentimes, what we see here in Scripture is a battle for what was going on in that time period. And in that time period, possessions were sometimes elevated, quite often elevated more important than people. And so the Lord's laws here are to say, no, that's not the way we're going to operate. What's most important are people. Now, this is a principle throughout Scripture. Because when we read in Genesis 1 and 2 how creation took place, we recognize that man was created in God's image unlike any other creature. I know, I know y'all love your pets. Y'all know what I'm saying? Don't get me started. They got PetSmart and pets, pets hospitals and all kind of stuff. I know you love your pets, but you cannot consider your pets more important than people. They're sweet to you. You love them and you pet on them. But you can't consider them more important than people, right? People are more important than pets. And that's exactly what he's saying. Your oxen out in the field, they make you money. You get milk from them. You, they pull. They help you make your crop. Those are not more important than people, though. People are created in God's image. And people are more important than all of them. And so ultimately here, that's what this law is bringing out. These human beings are, to be pre are, to, are precious before the Lord. And we're not to dilly-dally with them. And we're not to put human beings less than our possessions, less than our stuff. As my granddad always said to me, and, and uh, we, when we talked about ministry, he was a pastor. He was a, a grocery broker most of his life. I loved it because he dealt with candy. And so a lot of his life, you know, I could just go to the house and he'd bring home some overflow of candy, y'all know. And that was a blessing. 
Um, but then as, later in his life, he, he, the Lord called him into ministry, and for 25 years, he pastored a little church. And he would always tell me when something would happen, he would always say, you know, Josh, one thing you'll know or you'll figure out is life is about people, right? It's about relationships. It's about caring for one another, not possessions. The greatest possessions and treasures are not things but people. My greatest possessions I have are my greatest possessions because it's something my grandfather had or someone else took had a, had a part of. It's because of what it means to me by who gave it to me or what I have. You, you see, our greatest possessions, our greatest things, the greatest as people in our life. And here, these laws bear that out one after another. In fact, you'll see it over and over again. Human beings in chapter there, 28 through 32, that's what you see. Human beings are more important than people, even the slaves more important uh, than the animals. But then you also come next and you have what is referred to as property values, if you will. You see how he talks about restitution. And when a man opens a pit, down in verse 33, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. So here the restitution has to come. If you are responsible for the death of an animal, you've got to pay that bill. You can't just get away with this. While people are greater than animals, Possessions do matter, and they're not yours to do with what you want to when they are not yours. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also shall share. Now, you read that and you go, what in the world is he talking about? Until one day your ox gets butted by another ox and it dies. Then you need to know what to do about it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the whole point to these people that they're giving this to. This is everything to them. This is them trying to figure out how to live life together. I mean, you save up your money all you can and work hard for it to buy you an extra ox so that you can do more crops next year to help your family get have, have, have more settled and more, more uh, food and everything else. And then some doggone other ox come and butts that ox and that ox dies. What am I going to do about it? I've saved up. You've got to make some sort of restitution. This is how you live together. Laws matter. You can't just be negligent in things, but also it deals with theft. Chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Theft is not looked upon. In fact, what did one of the commandments say? You shall not steal. And so here, it's, that is the standard principle law, and these are the case laws and how it works out and how it operates. This book of the covenant is teaching them, showing them this is how we live together. You have that. You have negligence again. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast lose, uh, loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast in his own field and his own vineyard. Seriously, we look at this and say, this is crazy, but surely this has happened. And they, one beast gets over, man, you know, I, 
we, Alice and I had a little piece of land and we moved next door to a neighbor. And to say this neighbor was crotchety would be an understatement. Y'all ever met anybody crotchety? Okay. Don't be looking around now when you say stuff like that. This guy was an older gentleman. He had his stuff and his stuff was his stuff and he was crotchety. Well, we started, I was just talking to him one day and I found out, you know, like me, I'm a talker. I, I don't know if y'all noticed, but I'm slightly extroverted. And so I'm sitting there just, bam, da, 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 blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there talking and the guy, I said to the guy, you know, yeah, we've always wanted to have some goats. You know what the man said to me? Last people lived in that house had goats. They came over and ate my flowers and I shot them dead. And y'all know what I said? Maybe we won't have any goats. <laughs> My bad. Next time I won't talk to you about it. What's happened here is when you live together as neighbors, you have to have a way to understand how you live together. Laws, cases, how does this work? And that's exactly what the Lord is doing. This is a kindness we look at it and go, this seems so odd, but really it's not that odd. This is the same thing we do in our own society and how we handle situations of theft, of negligence, and all of those things. You can see it playing out. You come down, even borrowed goods. Oh, this is a good one. You know, I've, I have borrowed a million pencils in my life and never returned one of them. If his man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property for every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one of whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. In other words, these are not easy situations to figure out in the he said, she said. So what happens with the he, shed, he said, she said? God is going to work this out. God will do it. And in some way, there's some fear in that, isn't it? In some way, there's some fear here that's placed in. We live in a theocracy, he's saying. God is our judge and ruler. So when it comes down to he said this and she said that and you think you're going to get away with it because no one can judge it, who is the one who's going to judge it? God who knows everything. By the way, sometimes this is the hardest part of our own law in our own day and age when you have a situation that is he said versus she said, if you will. He said, he said, whatever it may be. And when it comes down to it, we have a difficult time making judgments on those things, don't we? God doesn't. God knows. God knows what has happened. God knows what took place. God knows who's at fault. And while the justice may not come quickly, it will come surely, the scriptures teach us. And in this case, we see it. If it comes down to he said this and she said that or whatever it may be, Bring them before the Lord. Y'all know what that means to them who just saw Sinai quake with the sound of God's voice? Y'all know what it means to them that just saw the, the cloud come down and the lightning strike and when he spoke it was like a thousand, thousand trumpets? Y'all know what that means then? I don't want to go before that God. I'd rather go ahead and settle this before we get there, right? 
That's what is happening here. Even in our own life, we think we can get away with it because who can prove it? Well, God always proves it. And he always, he always brings to terms the justice that is required. It may not be quick, but it will be sure. And that's what we see here in even those difficult sayings. The negligence, the borrowed goods. It's how you handle all of this stuff. You get to verse 16. This is an interesting one. Some think it may be out of place, but I, I think it goes here. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Surely we know that people are above everything else, but for many families, a daughter was important in how they would advance and move forward. And so here he's saying, if you take one for your uh, a virgin, you seduce one that you shouldn't and have, have, have relations with her before it is time, therefore causing that one not to be wanted by other men, then you have to take responsibility that for that for the rest of your life. This is saying you as a man cannot dominate any woman. You have to be responsible for the decisions you make and where you are. This, in fact, is an elevation, an elevation of the importance of, of women here, of, of their preciousness and the gift that they are. That's what he's doing. In many societies, by the way, it was a part of, and that's why I believe it's here. We'll see that in a second. It was a part of some uh, sexual rituals were a part of worship. You see this even in the New Testament when in, in Greece with Dionysus, the, the goddess of sex, as a part of worship in the temple. And so they would use these virgins, seduce them, bring them in, make them a part of worship, and then discard them. And what the Lord is saying is that will not happen on my watch or with my people. Because what are the next three, by the way? The next three deal with some cultic or false religion actions. So he says... If a man seduces a virgin, you got to you got to own it. You got to pay money equal for that price. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. That is in the context of cultic false religion worship. Many of them are saying that many of the false religions would have them do that. Bestiality would be a part of the worship. And so the Lord is saying that's not going to happen here. It's done. That's why the death penalty enters in here with the sorceress, the one committing bestiality, and whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. The death penalty enters in because what the Lord cannot have happen is his people turn to other false gods and worship. That's death penalty worthy. Remember, there's certain things that are death penalty worthy that we have. And it's invoked not as an indifference for human life, but rather because each human life is important. And you say, Josh, why does that matter? But that's been the argument for years from Scripture. The reason why capital punishment exists is because whoever that is has become a greater danger to the good of all of society and is a threat to kill everywhere you go. And so what he's saying here when the death penalty is invoked is because he's trying to protect his people from false religions, false worship, doing what would pollute them for eternity against him. It's the same reason why he said, if you curse your father or mother, you shall be put to death. Because remember, the very basis of society for them is the family. The family was so important 
that anyone who would seek to destroy that family unit has to be put to death so that that family unit can survive, so that their societies can survive. And so ultimately we see it here as cultic worship enters in. Then you have cultic practices. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child coming down. You are to have compassion for the weak. Really, I call this next section, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Really, I, I do that because we see how it's important to have compassion for the weak, how the, uh, we've talked about this before, how uh, the scriptures teach us we take care of the widow, of the orphan. You see it, verse 22. You see the New Testament picks up on that. That's what true religion is. God's people care for those who need the most, those who have the most needs. You mistreat them. They cry out to me. I will hear their cry. The Lord hears them. And my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's powerful, isn't it? If you don't care for the widows and the orphans, if you don't care for them, then you need to understand that the one who cares for you will turn against you himself. Do unto others what you'd have them do to yourself. If you were a widow or an orphan, what would you want to happen? You would want someone to care for you. If you were an orphan with no home anywhere to lay your head and nothing and no one to love you and care for you, wouldn't you want someone to come love you and care for you? That's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, and to turn against them. And if you say, before we say, you know what, this is a little harsh and I think... Thankful Jesus came. Y'all know what Jesus said about anybody that did, did something to the children? He said, you would rather have a millstone around your neck and be drowned rather than do something to hurt these little children. Y'all know he said that? Y'all remember that? That's not less than what he says here. That's right in the same line. If you, do, if you don't care for them, if you turn them away, then the Lord said, I'm going to turn you away. And if you do anything to harm them, Jesus said you would rather have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned. That would be better for you. My goodness, the Lord is serious about his people having compassion on those who need compassion. This is not the picture of a society that is a dog-eat-dog world. This is not a picture of a society that is just climb every rung of the ladder no matter what it takes, is it? This is a society that loves God and loves each other. And that's what God is saying with these laws. This is what we do as my people. We love God. We love each other. Compassion for others. Compassion for the weak. Compassion for the sojourners. Look at what he says in Moving over uh, to, I'm moving over my Bible, but verse 9. This goes along with chapter 22, verse 21. 21, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is the epitome of do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Because there is a... There's a clear lesson that's being learned, being taught here. The lesson is, remember who you were. Remember what you needed. 
Remember that you were in Egypt and left without anybody to help you or care for you. Remember you were there and I came for you. I came after you. Then my goodness, why don't you go after those who are in need, sojourners as well. God's people have a heart for those who have the greatest needs in our society. That's what he's saying. That's what we build ourselves on. Why? Because we have a God who came after us. We have a God who came after us. Laws about Sabbath and festival, you continue on that. Here, they want to make sure a couple things. One, we want to make sure that we have time for worship. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard, with your olive orchard. This idea of six years leaving off a year, giving rest not only to the people of God, but to the land. Rest, remember, is an act of faith. Everybody remember that. Rest is an act of faith. It was given us in design by God. God rested so as to give us a design. And remember, that's how he said it in the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. For in six days he created. On the seventh day he rested. So you rest too. God designs it there. And so in that, we rest on that sixth day, right? Our seventh day, we rest in that sense as a sign of we trust the Lord here. We don't work every single day. And understand, if you're living mouth to mouth or hand to mouth every day, you got to raise it up and you got to do it. In fact, I find it so fascinating because even in societies and cultures where they do live this way, I mean, I've seen people who uh, in, in South Asia, there was this one little village. They took rocks. They lived up next to a mountain. They would knock big pieces of granite out, and literally they would sit out in a circle and just beat that rock down to little pebbles, right? And they would work all day long to fill up a bin for the, for, uh, the oxen to take the town to sell the gravel, and that's what they would do so they would sell it next day they would take that they beat it out every day but even in that culture and society in some ways you find that they have to have rest how much more so is it for us then because you think I've got to take this to eat that's how I eat I've got to get this there to eat and so we get food this is how my family survives and so so in working you're feeding your family but the Lord is saying you trust me you don't trust your abilities I've given you those abilities, surely, but you trust me. I'm the one caring for you. So even rest is an act of faith to trust that God will provide. He will take what we do in our efforts and our works. He will multiply it so that we will be fed and blessed, and he is the one providing for us. Here, even with the land, you rest. Why? Because God is providing this. He's caring for us. He's watching over us. And therefore, rest is an act of worship. I know what I'm telling y'all. I'm telling y'all, take a nap and say, praise God. Thank the Lord for a nap. Claim it. If Men, if you need to claim that, tell them Pastor Josh told you. I saw an F-22 shoot down a Chinese spy balloon with my own eyes this week. I am feeling froggy. So by all means, take a nap and claim it. I'm worshiping, trusting the Lord. But in all seriousness, that's what rest means in Scripture. We rest because we trust. We trust God. 
ultimately, he's making sure that we rest. He then says, not only are you going to rest, but you need, you need to make time for worship. You make time for rest. And in that resting, the nature of resting is trusting, but that nature of resting is also anticipation. You see these festivals, you look toward them. They are setting out times and places where the people of God are to celebrate and to rest. And in that celebrating and resting, there is this pointing forward that occurs. We're looking for the day, right, where we'll finally and completely rest. Not, not only are you trusting now, and you're celebrating in who God is through these festivals and, re and, and rest, Sabbaths, but you are also saying, I trust God now, and I trust God that he will bring me home where I'll finally and completely rest forever. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 is all about, by the way. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that these people wandered in the wilderness and never entered the rest. Why? Because they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord. And this entire generation that we're talking about right now in Exodus will not make it to the promised land. Why? Because they believed these 10 spies who told them it was too big, they couldn't handle it, these cities were too large, and we are going to die. So they didn't go into the promised land because they didn't trust when God said, I will take you safely home. I'll conquer this land for you. You go. I've got this. We'll see that in the next little section, by the way. They didn't trust the Lord. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that rest is still available for all of us because the rest is not in a day. That rest is not even in a place. It's not in a three-day festival in the middle of June. That rest is now found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of this. Remember just a little bit back in Acts, we talked about how Jesus said in John, I'm going Acts and John, I know I got y'all everywhere, but just remember when we look to where do we find God there at that time, the presence of God was found in the temple and now we don't find God in a building anymore. We find him in a person. That person is Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. Tear this thing down in three days, I'll raise it back up. The presence of God is found in a person, not in a building. Well, so is the rest that we long for. It's not found in a day. Doesn't that seem silly? It's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That day was pointing to that person. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The rest that you long for is still available. Just trust in Jesus. And when you trust in Jesus and you find your rest there, one day... You'll find the ultimate rest when he brings you safely into his promised land. I may have told this story before, but sometimes I'm getting of age and you preach long enough, you, some, sometimes you repeat the same story. Just saying, don't, don't judge a pastor by that. Don't bring it up. Don't say I've heard that story 10 times because it hurts our feelings. Just say, us. good, thank you. I was sitting there one day and we were singing at a church. And I was getting ready to preach, and it was down. It was like this little service down at the beach, and we are getting ready to preach. It was a good crowd in there. People from all over had come. And the guy that was helping us out playing the little keyboard, he's, he should have just stayed in his place. But we were singing I'll Fly Away. Y'all know I'll Fly Away? Man, that's a Bible song. The Bible tells us we'll fly up and meet him in the air. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's the Psalms. And so we're singing I'll Fly Away. And we're getting that going, and we get to just a few more 
weary days and then. And old boy on the keyboard, I don't know what caught a hold of him. But he goes, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. Right now, if you're a pastor and that's happening in the service, your heart is sinking, you're about to die deep within yourself, what in the world is about to happen? I have lost control. And the old boy said, I don't think we as Christians should sing just a few more weary days and then. We ought to be happy. Let's sing just a few more happy days and then. Well, first of all, he said happy days, I thought Fonzie. Which is a little different than Richie, Richie Cunningham. And, and there ain't nothing you can do at that point but let it happen. You know what I'm saying? But old boy made me mad. Not just because he spoke up, because he is wrong. I am tired. Y'all know what I'm saying? I'm tired from fighting my sin on the right. I'm tired from fighting my sin on the left. I'm tired of seeing sin has its effect on people and destroying lives. I'm tired of having to care for widows and orphans because they shouldn't exist anymore. Y'all know what I mean. I'm longing for the day when all that is done. My sin is gone and away from me. The effects of sin have been dealt with and we don't see its disastrous work over and over again in our society and with people. I don't have to deal with that no more. I'm tired from that. So I think it's right. Just a few, y'all get the word few, just a few more weary days and then. That song is telling us there's something we can look forward to where the heartache and the pain and the trouble of this life is done. And the Lord knows as we walk through the wilderness into Sinai, he knows this is going to be hard, y'all. Don't forget me. Set aside days to worship me. Rest, rest in me. And know that I'm going to care for you. And whenever you rest, know that this world is not the end. There's a home waiting for us on the other side. In this book of the covenant, the Lord is making that promise to his people. Don't forget it. Rest. Trust me. And know that there's a greater rest coming whenever you find it. Know us there. And for us... That is found in Jesus Christ. He is the yes and amen of all the promises of God. He's the rest we long for. He's the hope that we hold on to. He's the peace that we're looking for in the midst of the storm. He's the safety, right? The safe place in the midst of the world that is chaos. He's the certainty in the midst of a world that is uncertain by every means. He is all of that for us. Rest right there. And he's the one who says at just the right time, not, not too soon and way before, you get to the place where you can't handle it anymore. At just the right time, he's the one that's going to break the sky wide open and come back for his people. And if you don't make it to that day, don't worry. If you're a child of God, he's the one the scripture says will be waiting on you in glory. Jesus is it. And the Lord is teaching his people here. In the government of my life here, rest in me. Trust. 
trust and anticipate that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And even as you give us these laws, Father, we learn who your kindness is to us and what we have in Christ Jesus. So help us to rest in him. Father, thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all so much. Listen, Sunday, here's the plan. Just to give you all a heads up. Sunday morning, if you come to our band-led service, it will be by, unless the creek rises, it will be in our fellowship hall this Sunday morning. But look, I'm excited about this. This Sunday night at 5 o'clock. And listen, before y'all say anything to me about a Super Bowl, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I don't know what you're talking about. This Sunday, but it doesn't start till 6.30. This Sunday at 5 o'clock, we're going to have our regularly scheduled Lord's Supper time together. This Sunday at 5 o'clock. And this Sunday at 5 o'clock, you don't want to miss it. We're going to meet in our fellowship hall to worship the Lord there. Pray, thank God for it, and worship there together this Sunday at 5 o'clock, okay? We'll see y'all this Sunday. Y'all have a great night.